Hey there, McConaughey here. And I want to let you in on something. Master distiller Eddie Russell and I have created a new small batch bourbon, Wild Turkey Long Branch, refined with Texas mesquite charcoal for a smoky sweetness. It is my favorite bourbon on the planet. Wild Turkey Long Branch, real bourbon, no apologies. Wild Turkey Long Branch, Kentucky Straight Bourbon Whiskey. 43% alcohol by volume. Campari America, New York, New York. Never compromise. Drink responsibly. So I sort of scratched a bit of sand away from around the head. And I decided it wasn't a medical tool, it was in fact a body. Hello everyone and welcome to another episode of Insight. My name is Ali and with me as always is my co-host Charlie. What is new with you? Oh, not much. Actually, like nothing at all. (laughs) It's all the same, all the time. Did you realise, I just realised it just before we started recording, by the time this episode comes out, it's our half birthday. Oh, that's exciting. Okay, so that's new. We're celebrating... So happy birthday. Happy half birthday. Yeah, six months of podcasting. I would have bought a cake, but... It doesn't ship well. And I'd have to eat it all myself. (laughs) So tonight is a story from my side of the world, and it's also a listener suggestion. So thank you, Vicky. Tonight we will be talking about the Wanda Beach murders. And this happened very close in time to another well-known beach-related crime, the disappearance of the Beaumont children. And that happened less than two weeks after this. These two crimes changed the landscape of Australia forever. These two cases in particular, along with another one that was suggested recently on our Facebook group, these were the stories I heard time and time again growing up. So if you haven't listened to the Beaumont Children episode, definitely listen to that one after this one, and you'll get a feeling of what was happening in 1960s Australia. So Helmut and Elizabeth Schmidt arrive in Melbourne, Australia on September 13, 1958. They come from Germany with their six children, Helmut Jr., Marianne, Hans, Peter, Trixie and Wolfgang. The Schmidts are amongst a number of West German families coming to Australia on an assisted agreement after the Second World War. The family settle into life on the south coast of New South Wales in the town of Tamora. Elizabeth has their seventh child, another boy they named Norbert, and Helmut starts working as a carpenter. However, in March of 1963, Helmut is diagnosed with Hodgkin's disease, which is a form of cancer that attacks the lymph glands. The Schmidt family then move to Brush Road Ride in the suburbs of Sydney, where Helmut sadly dies of this illness in June 1964. Living next door to the Schmidt family was Jim and Jeanette Targ and their granddaughter, Christine Sharrick. Christine's own father had died and she chose to live with her grandparents instead of her mother and stepfather. Did you see anywhere where it said why she had chosen to live with her grandparents? I'm just going to assume maybe she didn't get along with her stepfather yeah, and it's not terribly relevant to the story, but it I was just curious. So Marianne Schmidt and Christine become fast friends. They realise they have a lot in common. Their birthdays were only a couple of weeks apart. They loved pop music. They both were discovering boys, and they both had lost their father. 
In January 1965, Elizabeth Schmidt was admitted to hospital for a major operation. She leaves the two eldest children, 16-year-old Helmut Jr. and 15-year-old Marianne, in charge of the house and the five other children while she recovered in hospital. On Saturday, January 9, 1965, Marianne and Christine, who was also 15, they visit Elizabeth in hospital. While they are there, they ask Elizabeth if they could take the younger children to Cronulla Beach in southern Sydney. And this is the only beach that would be accessible to them from the suburbs by the train. And Cronulla Beach held special significance for the Schmidt family because they used to go there a lot before Helmut died and they had already been there at least twice this year, so they knew the area well by themselves. So with that, Elizabeth gives the girls permission to go the following day on the condition that they were careful and kept an eye on the younger children. However, the next day it rains, so the trip is postponed until the Monday, which was January 11, 1965. The older boys decide not to go on the trip and instead stay home and catch up on some household chores. So Marianne Schmidt and Christine Sharrick decide to take the remaining four younger Schmidt children to Cronulla Beach by themselves. Christine packs inside her beach bag a thermos of cold cordial, a beach towel, a plastic purse containing a one-pound note, a pair of sunglasses, and a transistor radio. Okay, can I ask, what did she put in the thermos? Cordial. So... I don't know what you guys would call that. You'll have to translate it for me. (laughs) It's a syrup that you add water to. Like for a drink? Yes. So like a a juice concentrate or like some kind of concentrate? I don't even... I don't know that we have that. Okay. (laughs) Just something disgusting we put in our bodies. (laughs) Does it at least taste good? It tastes good. It's pure sugar with some flavoring in it. Oh, well, sounds good to me. It's pretty disgusting, but it tastes good. So Christine didn't pack any other food with her, so I'm assuming that she was just going to share what Marianne packed because we do know that Marianne packed some different types of sandwiches and some fruit to eat at the beach. As she packs, Christine tells her grandmother that she was looking forward to walk across the sand hills like they did on their previous visit to Wanda Beach a few weeks before. Christine's grandmother tells her not to go because she had the younger children with her and it was too far to walk, which is a fair call. It was a long walk, about four kilometres or two and a half miles each way, and the youngest was Norbert at five years old, so I can understand that, especially with the weather not being the best. Shortly before 8.30 that morning, Christine, Marianne and the four youngest Schmidt children they walked to West Ride train station to catch the train to Redfern. The girls were seen talking to a boy that was aged around 15 on the train to Redfern. The boy and the girls go their separate ways there. He leaves the train station and the girls take the adjoining train to Cronulla. Now, there are four beaches at Cronulla, of course Cronulla Beach, then North Cronulla, Eluera and finally Wanda Beach. If you're looking from Cronulla train station, Wanda Beach would be the furthest from the train station. But it's Wanda Beach where the eight kilometres, or about five miles of Sand Hill start, which is what the girls seemed most interested in that day. 
So just before 11 o'clock, the group arrives at Cronulla and they walk through Cronulla Park past the Life Saving Club to the beach. But they find that Cronulla Beach is actually closed due to the dangerous surf conditions because it was quite windy that day. The girl still leads the younger children to the southern end of the beach where they leave their bags and towels by the rocks. After a quick swim in the shallow part of the beach, they eat their sandwiches and fruit before Marianne brings up the idea of going for a walk in the sand hills. So the group leaves their bags behind, they hide them behind some rocks, and they walk past North Cronulla Beach and Eluira until they arrive at Wonder Beach. It's about one o'clock at this point, and the group gets to about 200 metres, or about 125 miles, past the Wonder Beach Surf Club. The younger children start to complain that the wind is causing the sand to hit their legs and it hurt. And anyone who has been at a beach on a windy day It isn't the most pleasant experience. Marianne tells the children to shelter behind one of the smaller sand dunes leading up to the sand hills. And she tells the children she would go back to Cronulla Beach with Christine to get their bags and they would go home. They cover the younger children with their towels and leave them to play with Christine's transistor radio. However, instead of heading south towards Cronulla Beach, the two girls head off north into the sand hills. The younger children call out to them that they're going the wrong way, but the girls just laugh and keep on going into the sand hills. This would be the last time Marianne and Christine would be seen alive. So Peter, who was 15, 9-year-old Trixie, 8-year-old Wolfgang and 5-year-old Norbert, they wait near the sand hills for several hours before they walk back to the southern end of Cronulla Beach. They find their bags, along with Marianne and Christine's wallets and train tickets, and they're untouched. The girls hadn't returned. The children go back to the train station in time for the last train at 6 o'clock. They get home sometime after 8pm. At the time, the eldest child, Helmut, is still visiting their mother in hospital, so it was Hans who went next door to tell Christine's grandparents that the girls were missing. Christine's grandmother, Jeanette Targ, assumes the girls had just missed the train and because they didn't have their tickets anymore, they were most likely stranded in Cronulla, which, I mean, that would probably that would probably be the assumption I would make as well. Yeah, I wouldn't. Well, I probably would jump immediately to they were kidnapped and something terrible happened. <laughs> but in this time, that's not what people thought or they wouldn't have let them take all these young children to the beach. Exactly. It was like... Like we were talking about in our Beaumont Children episode, these cases changed how people parented in Australia. Jeanette calls her son because she wasn't sure what to do. She didn't have a car and Elizabeth was in hospital. Jeanette's son tells her to call the police. So the police get to the houses at almost midnight and by that stage, Helmut has also gotten home from the hospital. The police immediately assume the girls have run off with some boys or maybe went to a friend's place, but Helmut is adamant that this is not a possibility. Although entries in the girls' diaries do show that they did meet with two boys at Cronulla Beach on New Year's Day and they had parted with a kiss and a promise to meet again. Helmut also tells police that Marianne walked across the sand hills that day and no one could find her for some time. But they hadn't seen her talk to anyone in particular. 
The police ask to speak to the younger children, but again, Helmut says no, that they are too tired and the police needed to come back tomorrow. That seems a bit strange to me. I would assume there would be some concern about the girls' whereabouts. Helmut at least doesn't think that they had just run off, yet he doesn't seem to have any urgency in finding out where they went. I wonder if that was part of his age. I mean, he was 16. Maybe he didn't really, I don't know, maybe his mind just didn't go, didn't think it all through. I mean, he was 16 and he was staying home taking care of an entire family. I guess so. He'd be probably like a lot. he'd probably be more annoyed that she didn't come home because now he's got to look after all these children by himself. Yeah, and annoyed that she let the kids get on the train by themselves. I mean, the oldest one on the train was twelve or thirteen, so it was I, he could have just been annoyed at her more than anything. The next day, a teen slash young adult Peter Smith took his young nephews for an early morning walk along Wanda Beach and along the sand hills. One of his nephews pointed out what looked like someone lying partially buried in the sand and it was pretty much like a foot or maybe both it was both feet and an elbow sticking out of a mound in the sand. Peter noticed that the body was face down so he first thought it was a mannequin He went over and brushed some sand away from the head area and realized it was actually a human body. He didn't spend a lot of time looking around, though, and he didn't realize that she was murdered. And he just grabbed his nephews and hightailed it out of there. He went to the nearby Wanda Beach clubhouse that we had talked about them passing earlier for some help, thinking that maybe this was a drowning victim that had gotten washed up. From the clubhouse, the police were called, and when they went to the scene, they realized there were actually three feet visible and that there was another body nearby. They hadn't been buried so much as just kind of covered with sand that had been blown away. Detectives noticed that there was a 34-meter long drag mark, which is about 37 yards, back to where the girls were found. And blood was also found on these drag marks. Based on the positioning, the theory is that while Marianne was being attacked, Christine tried to run. The attacker chased after her and attacked her before dragging her back to where Marianne was. The autopsy showed that Christine had been hit on the back of her head and her skull was fractured It's possible that this is how the attacker incapacitated her in order to drag her back by hitting her on the head. So Christine was stabbed at least six times. Marianne had been stabbed at least 14 times and with one of the wounds penetrating her heart and her throat had been severely cut. There were also obvious attempts of rape on both of the girls with their pants being cut or removed and sperm was found on their bodies. However, the autopsy showed that penetration never occurred. Both girls' hymens were still intact. Now, interestingly, Allie, you mentioned that Marianne had packed sandwiches for the day and they brought all this food for everybody. Well, the contents of Christine's stomach had celery and cabbage in them, which was not something the girls had taken with them. 
and they also didn't have enough money with them to buy food. And I actually looked it up. You guys have a a roll, La Chica, is that what it's called? Chikai roll. Okay, so it's kind of like a Chinese spring roll where it would have cabbage and celery yes. in it. Because I thought cabbage <laughs> and celery is not something most 15-year-olds would choose to eat if they had a choice. But it made me think, oh, it must have been a spring roll. And that's how I learned about Chico rolls. Yes. Anyway, Christine also had a blood alcohol level of 0. 0.015, which is what you would expect from a glass of beer. It was determined that it was from drinking alcohol and not the vegetables fermenting in the digestive tract. So at some stage, at least one of the girls had been drinking. There was, however, no alcohol found in Marianne's system. The police take the kids back to the beach and across the sand hills, trying to retrace the steps of that day. And Wolfgang remember he's a seven-year-old, remembers that he had seen the girls walking into the sandhills with a boy who was about 16 years old with fair or light brown hair and a smooth shaven face. He was wearing light gray trousers, no shirt, and he was carrying a blue towel. There are some problems with Wolfgang's story. You know, first he was seven and he's the only one of those younger kids who had seen that young man. And also his story would change and kind of get bigger the more they talked to him about it. Two days after he was first interviewed, Wolfgang told the detectives that they had seen the same boy on the beach earlier the day. And he was hunting for crabs with a homemade spear gun and a knife and a holster. Then he said he saw the boy walk back out of the sand hills 10 minutes after the girls went in there and the knife was missing. Then in another story, when the girls had been gone about 10 minutes Peter sent Wolfgang to look for them and that's when he sees the boy walking back and he actually talks to him he said he asked the boy where the girls were and the boy just ignored him and walked past this changing and evolving story is what you would expect from a seven-year-old who really wanted to help another thing about these stories too I can't find anywhere how the other kids backed him up. So if Wolfgang actually did speak to someone, you think he would have went back and said, Peter, this boy was there. I asked him about the girls. You don't hear that from any other child, just Wolfgang. Right. So not only is he the only one who saw them, he didn't saw this boy. He never mentioned the boy to anyone, even though he had an interaction with him, possibly. One of the younger children did see someone else while they were waiting on the girls, which took hours. They were waiting there. Peter asked Trixie to go see if she could see the girls coming back. Like Allie said, this is like miles of sand hills, and it's not easy to just see. Well, she went up and she looked over, and she did see two boys sliding down the sand hills, yeah. but the lead didn't go anywhere. They were really just two innocent kids playing on the sand hills. The detectives tried to build an identikit sketch of the suspect to release to the media. And working with Wolfgang, though, it didn't go so well. Like we said numerous times, he was seven. He probably really just wanted to help. He hadn't seen the boy for that long. And in the end, he pretty much was agreeing with the suggestions that were put in front of him. And even so, the sketch was far too vague to be of any use. They got Peter to sit with him as well to see if 
having his brother there would help him remember or be calm and to do the sketch. And Wolfgang was just agreeing with everything Peter said at that stage. So I don't know how accurate this sketch actually is. So on Wednesday, January 13, 1965, which was two days after the murders, the information about the crimes were released to the media, along with a description of the person of interest based on Wolfgang's statements. The media described the person of interest as a 16-year-old surfy with long blonde hair. The problem with this is, at that time in that location, this described almost every teenage boy in the area. It was a very generic description. And the largest reward to date in Australia was announced at £10,000. And I did Google a conversion of what that would be in today's money, and it would be around 76000 Australian dollars or 58000 US dollars. So because of this generic description and the large amount of money being offered, thousands of tips came through. Among those tips was one from a local fireman, Dennis Dostein. Dennis was walking towards Wanda Beach with his five-year-old son when he noticed two girls walking between the sand hills. It was about quarter to one in the afternoon and about 400 metres from the eventual crime scene. These girls, who matched the description of Christine and Marianne, they were walking along the sand hills. However, Dennis reports that one of these girls kept looking behind her as if they were being followed and they seemed to be walking at a fast pace. And like with any high-profile crime, rumours and false confessions did come in. On January 15, so we're now four days after the murder, a local newspaper reports that an 18-year-old boy with long blonde surfy-style hair, he was being held at a police station in Brisbane, but that turned out to be just a rumour. And during the initial investigation... We do know it's common for police to withhold key details in open investigations. This allows the police to sort through people who are really involved in the crime from those who are maybe looking for attention or maybe mentally unstable. And this case was no different. So in the initial investigation, the police had five different men come forward and they all claimed to have committed the Wanda Beach murders. They were able to discount these confessions because the men knew nothing of the crime outside of what was reported in the media. And police were looking for a few different men. They searched for a man aged about 25 with light brown hair and medium build. He had a somewhat flushed or red, ruddy complexion and missing teeth. And he had approached several women on the day and offered them money for sex. A second man, a larger man wearing grey trousers with long hair and stubble, he approached several women on the day that Christine and Marianne died. He would tell these women he was from South Australia and ask them for sex. Now, the description of both these men, they do seem similar to what Wolfgang originally saw with the light brown hair, the grey trousers. Maybe he had seen maybe these men or maybe other men and just created this one person in his head because he felt maybe he was doing a good thing by telling police there was someone. I'm not sure. I think Wolfgang was motivated by trying to help. Exactly. What an incredibly stressful time for the family. It's just, it's extremely overwhelming for a seven-year-old, for anyone, 
but especially seven-year-olds. There is a picture from the newspaper of the kids walking along the beach, and it's a picture that has stayed with me for many years. It's a, such a sad photo. I'm sure we'll put it on the Facebook page, but it's, it's mm-hmm. stayed with me as one of those pictures that always tugs at my heartstrings every time I see it. So there are also some other interesting characters on the beach that day. There was a naked man seen walking out of the sand hills and a man masturbating on the beach in the weeks following the murders. The police publicly announced they wanted to speak to all of these people, but of course, none of them came forward. I wonder why. The problem remained that there were no eyewitnesses besides Wolfgang's alleged sighting, and there was very little in the way of physical evidence at the crime scene. Police used a front-end loader to work through tons of sand around the crime scene. But again, this is the 1960s, and the search didn't have any of the modern sophistication that we see today. There was an old knife with some blood on it found in the sand, but despite what the media reported at the time, the knife had no links to the murder. A slither of steel that was possibly from a kitchen knife was found, but again, it was never able to be linked to the murders. But all up, the investigation was quite extensive, with more than 14,000 people being interviewed and about 5,000 persons of interest were identified. And just letting you know now, we won't be going through them all today, just the three main persons of interest, which we will get to shortly. But first, there have been a couple of murders linked to the Wanda Beach murders. On Saturday, January 19, 1966, the body of Wilhelmina Kruger was found in the basement of a Wollongong parking lot, which is about 63 kilometres or 39 miles away from Wanda Beach. Wilhelmina was a 57-year-old cleaner and she had started her shift at the Piccadilly Arcade Shopping Centre in the early hours of that Saturday morning. Shortly before 6am, Wilhelmina was found bludgeoned and stabbed to death at the bottom of a stairwell. She had also been strangled with her own stockings. Investigators who were on this case, and many of these investigators had also been on the Wanda Beach investigation. So these investigators came out at a press conference and said that it was quite possible these cases were linked. And for these reasons, we'll get into shortly. The next month, another murder happened in that area. It was on February 26, 1966, that the decomposed body of Anna Dalincoa was found by the side of the old Illawarra Highway at Manai, which is closer to Wollongong than where Christine and Marianne were killed. And I just have to say, I can't believe Allie put all those words in a sentence and expected me to say it. (laughs) Anna's body remained hidden for several days before the killer returned and moved it closer to the highway, probably so it could be discovered. Anna had been last seen 10 days before her body was discovered leaving a bar or a nightclub. She had been stabbed and mutilated, and the police determined that Anna's and Wilhelmina's murders were linked and that they were killed by the same person. Looking In looking back on these cold cases in 1990, the Australian Institute of Criminology said that police do suspect that these two murders plus the Wanda Beach murders were linked. And there are a couple of similarities. So first, in all four, the bodies were dragged to where they were eventually found. 
Second, there were no serious attempts made to conceal the bodies. Third, they all happened in the same basic area, in or close to Sydney. And fourth, sexual molestation occurred after the murders. Now, this last one is uncommon enough that four such cases in the same area in about a year, it's not really a stretch to suspect that they're connected. And I'm sure there's more reasons the police believe the cases are linked than what they're releasing to the public, in particular in how Anna was mutilated. There were some unsubstantiated rumours that there may have been mutilation involved in the Wanda Beach murders as well. But as I said, they have never been confirmed by police, so we cannot know for sure. And then in June 1966, 19-year-old Carolyn May Orphan's naked body was found on a bypass road in Wollongong. Like the other victims, Carolyn had been raped, strangled and beaten to death with a large rock after leaving a Wollongong dance. And that brings us to our first person of interest, Alan Raymond Bassett. Bassett was 21 years old when he was subsequently charged with Carolyn's murder and he was sentenced to life in prison. He was later diagnosed with schizophrenia and was transferred to Morissette Psychiatric Hospital in Newcastle. There was an inquest into Wilhelmina's murder in September 1966 and it was determined that there were similarities between Wilhelmina's and Carolyn's murders. Bassett denies being involved in any other murder besides Carolyn's, but one of the detectives, Detective Cess Johnston, he was involved in the Wanda Beach investigation, and he is convinced that Barrett was involved, and he says that Barrett knows more about Mary Ann's and Christine's murders than he is letting on. It must be said, though, that other detectives that were involved in the cases, they don't believe Bassett was involved. Alan Raymond Bassett is the one who gifted him a painting. He did. And that's where the majority of the clues are coming from. Johnston would regularly go and visit Barrett at Morissette Hospital. And on one of these visits, Bassett does give Johnston a painting. It was a bush scene that he titled A Bloody Awful Thing. Johnston believes that the painting has in it some grass with blood on it, a broken knife, and hidden in the painting are the bodies of four women that he believes are Christine, Marianne, Wilhelmina and Anna. Now, I've seen the photo. I'm not convinced. What about you, Charlie? I looked at it and I saw the things being pointed out. And I wonder if this is one of those things. I'm wondering if this is confirmation bias. He was looking for something in there and so he found something in there. Just, Just personally, they pointed out the blood on the grass but to me, it could just be shading. And same, right. same with the bodies. It could just be shading in the painting. It doesn't necessarily have to be a body, blood, a knife. Right. It's like if you look at clouds and you see one thing, but someone else says, don't you think it looks like a dinosaur? All of a sudden you can see a dinosaur in it. Yeah. I didn't feel like any of the things in there were so obvious. But Bassett's own father was convinced his son was responsible for the murders and he went on national television with his suspicions and he actively fought his son's day release from prison in the 1980s. Bassett was eventually released from prison in 1995 and since he's released, Bassett has offered to give his DNA to clear his name, but whether or not he has been cleared as a suspect, that's never been released to the public. 
Another suspect in this case was serial killer slash spree killer Christopher Wilder. He's also known as the Beauty Queen Killer. And people familiar with his crimes might want to stop us and remind us that he was an American serial killer. While Allie's not exactly eager to claim him, I'm sure (laughs) Wilder was Australian. As a teenager, he pled guilty to a gang rape in Australia and was given probation. In 1969, when he was about 24 years old, he moved to America with dreams of becoming a race car driver. He had multiple convictions in the U.S. for sex offenses, but he was not sentenced to any jail time in spite of his repeat offenses. In at least one of these cases, he lured a young woman to him by promising her a modeling contract. And I think that might be something we want to just put a pin in for when we discuss our theories. This kind of makes me cranky. Like, good on you, justice system. He obviously, like, he was a repeat offender. If something had happened back then, what does happen in the preceding years may never have happened. Exactly. He, As he escalated and continued to offend, there was no one, no one stopping him. Exactly. And he would have felt invincible too because he'd gotten away with so much before. Exactly. And in 1982, he returned to Australia and he allegedly kidnapped two teenage girls and he forced them to pose for pornographic photos on a Sydney beach. And we say allegedly because he was not convicted of these crimes. And we'll talk about that right now. His family posted a $35,000 bail and he fled back to America. And while... Over here, he then conducted a six-week rape and murder spree across the United States, where he killed at least eight young women. Eventually, a woman he abducted in Massachusetts escaped and was able to provide a description of him and his vehicle. At a gas station in New Hampshire, he was spotted by two state troopers who recognized him from the broadcast put out about him. They approached him. He went for his gun. One of the troopers grabbed him from behind, and in the scuffle over the gun, two shots discharged. One went through Wilder and also injured the trooper, and the second went into Wilder's chest. He died, but the trooper recovered, and the shooting was ruled an accident. So let's go ahead and rewind to the mid-60s when the Wanda Beach murders occurred, and then the two possibly linked murders a year later. Christopher Wilder was a about 20 years old. He was blonde and thick set, and he was living in Sydney. He apparently was a good match to one of the composites that was completed on the Wanda Beach suspect. However, we don't know a whole lot about the description used for the sketch that they matched him to and if this was Wolfgang's description. If you think back to our Bible John episode and the research we talked about into composite sketches and recall versus recognition memory, I don't put too much into the composite in this case. Composite sketches are more reliable if there's a feature that's easily to, easy to discern. And in this case, the description of the teen seen with the girls is fairly generic. The sheer number of surfer types that they interviewed in the area tells you that this kid had a common enough look about him. And of course, the description comes from a seven-year-old who saw him briefly. Except for his other crimes and also how he lured girls to him, I'm not 
I'm not sure that there's a whole lot of evidence for Wilder. Most recently convicted murderer and pedophile Derek Ernest Percy was named a person of interest in the Wanda Beach murders. We talked about him back in the Beaumont Children episode. He's pretty terrible. He is. So up until his death in 2013, Percy was convicted for the mutilation murder of 12-year-old Yvonne Tui on a Victorian beach in 1970. He was described by a prison officer as Australia's Hannibal Lecter, which should give you some indication of what type of guy this man was. Percy was found not guilty on the grounds of insanity, and although he was never convicted, he became Australia's longest-serving prisoner as every psychiatrist who spoke to Percy found him too dangerous to ever be released. In Percy's prison cell, they found notebooks where he wrote about detailed plans of the murders of children. And it was deemed that there was no way he would have just written about the crimes in a fiction sense, and he most likely had carried them out. And that Percy most likely had just wiped knowledge of doing these crimes from his memory. And he does play that fact up when he's being interviewed about other suspected crimes. So besides the murder of Tui, he's also a person of interest in the disappearance of the Beaumont children in January of 1966. He was in the area when they disappeared, and he does look scarily like the composite sketch of that suspect. He's a person of interest in the murders at Wanda Beach, and also three-year-old Simon Brook in Sydney in May 1968. With the Wanda Beach and Simon Brook murders, Percy did go on the record and say that he may have committed these crimes, but he couldn't remember. He did admit that he did drive past where Simon's body was found, and at the time of the Wanda Beach murders, it is suspected he was in Sydney with his father at a boat show and that Percy's grandmother lived less than two kilometres, or only one mile, away from where Christine and Marianne both lived. And if he was staying there, he would have travelled on the same train line as the girls did to the beach that day. He was also a person of interest in the murder of six-year-old Alan Redston in Canberra in September 1968, and the disappearance of eight-year-old Linda Stilwell in Melbourne in 1968 and Percy admits to being in Melbourne on the day Linda disappeared. So the scary thing is, is all these crimes happened within four years. And as we've both said, Australia was an innocent, safe place at this time. It is possible that the same person could be responsible for some of these disappearances and murders. But looking through the list, there is a difference between a young child, like in the case of Simon Brooke, and two teenage girls, like in the case of Wanda Beach, or even one teenage girl, such as Yvonne Tui. Is it possible Percy was involved? I'm not sure. I'd like to believe that one person did everything, because I don't want to believe that such evil is split into three or four different people. One of the things that interests me about Percy, if anyone was interested in looking into him more, is that he's only been definitively linked to one murder, even though he's a suspected serial killer. They have not been able to prove that he was connected to any others, and he was found not guilty by reason of insanity for the one. And as I said earlier, he liked to play it all up. I may have been involved. I can't remember. I was in the area. I can't remember. So there are some other 
possibilities other than a serial killer. And one of these possibilities is that the girls saw something they shouldn't. It is possible that as the girls were walking on the sand hills, even though this doesn't explain why they were walking on the sand hills away from their bags, however, they could have saw something they shouldn't have. The sand hills at Wanda Beach were remote and on a windy day where they weren't supposed to be swimming and the surf wasn't good for surfing, there wouldn't have been a lot of people there. And these sand hills gave privacy. There would be nude sunbathers, also people engaging in sex acts, and people selling and using drugs. All of these people could be found there. So to explore one of these groups a little bit more, in the 1960s in Australia, homosexuality was illegal. So the Sand Hills allowed some anonymity. And also a little trivia here, homosexuality wasn't legalized until 1994 in Australia. And the last person arrested for being gay was in 1984. But let's just pause and compare that to the U.S., where anti-sodomy laws weren't struck down until until 2003, and 13 years later, men are still being arrested for violating these non-existent laws. So, you know, progress. Maybe it'll happen. Anyway, back to our topic. Having places to meet without the fear of being arrested or having your name smeared through the community was a real thing. And with regards to the sand hills, cars could park behind them. So this allowed for even more privacy, but also the ability to leave very quickly. So perhaps the girls went over the sand hills for one reason, and they stumbled on people engaged in illegal behavior. There were rumors that the girls could have snuck away into the sand hills looking for sex or drugs. I don't find this likely at all. If you look at the girls' lives before this incident, as well as the autopsy results, it doesn't add up. Neither had drugs in their systems, and both were still virgins. They were known as good girls. They got good marks at school. They helped look after the younger children in the area. They weren't the types to do things like that. Yeah, they're the type that make plans to go to the beach and take all the little kids with them. Exactly. If they were going to meet up for some wild sex party, they wouldn't have taken the younger children with them. Right. And it's also not usually someone's first introduction to sex. So it's unlikely that they would have been virgins going to a sex party. So detectives went to both girls' school and interviewed all the students and teachers There was this theory that maybe the girls had agreed to meet someone they knew at the beach that day and then went off into the sand hills for a secret rendezvous. The problem with this scenario is the girls weren't supposed to go to the beach that day. They were supposed to go the day before on the Sunday, but the weather was too bad. And this is the time before cell phones and social media. They wouldn't have been able to Facebook message their friends and say, hey, we're going tomorrow. So the likelihood of this being a secret date, it's highly unlikely. So what do you think happened, Charlie? I'd be kind of hesitant to believe that they stumbled onto something. Just the murder seems so violent and sexually motivated that it makes me think that murder was the ultimate goal. And it wasn't that they were wrong place, wrong time. 
But if they did stumble, I mean, I could be wrong. If they did stumble into something, I don't think it was illicit sex or it was two gay men. This crime was extremely brutal and killing two 15-year-olds to stay in the closet, it, it just doesn't seem like something that would happen. About them being followed, one thing that struck me is this man saw them walking and looking over their shoulder as though they're trying to make sure they're not followed, yet he didn't see anyone following them. No. And my thought is, were they looking over their shoulder to make sure the kids were not following them? Ah, good point. I don't know, maybe because I'm like trying to sneak off to the bathroom without a three-year-old following me. I'm very used to this walking quickly and looking over my shoulder, but I personally think they were possibly lured there by an older teen at the beach maybe a 20 something not necessarily that they had the intention of hooking up maybe just hanging out and flirting a little bit before they headed back i wouldn't completely rule out the possibility of there being a second attacker because one of the questions that comes up is why didn't one of the girls get away that said I don't think two attackers would have let Christine run quite so far before catching up to her. So I really do think it was one attacker, but they felt comfortable enough that they were that Christine was relaxed enough that it took her a second to run. And that's what makes me think it was someone maybe in their twenties against some against a sixteen year old because they had that comfort, they had that knowledge not to panic and to chase after her make her unconscious and drag her back. Right. I suppose they could have been ambushed, but I, that still leaves the question of why were they walking across the sand hills away from where the direction they were supposed to go. And I think they told the kids, hey, just wait here. We'll be right back. We're just going to go get our stuff. And then they decided to go hang out with the sky for a minute, you know, go talk to him for a minute, possibly. There may be some element of truth in Wolfgang's statement. He may have seen someone. It may have not have been this composite sketch that did come out. Maybe they were there to meet that boy. Maybe they went to meet him and they did come across something they shouldn't have seen. I watched uh, the interview with with Marianne's mother. That's heartbreaking. After that interview, she died of cancer. So I, I read an interview with the brother trying, they're still trying and hoping to find some real answers of what happened that day. And I just can't imagine that there will be any until our DNA technology can test those extremely degraded samples they have. I don't know that it might be a while before our technology catches up to be able to test them. And that's the problem we saw in the Bible John murders We don't have that technology still because they are degraded, the DNA samples we do have. But the problem is they wouldn't have been kept the way they should have been kept back then because they didn't know. So the technology may never catch up. And that's really sad to me. It's difficult to know that had this crime happened 10 years ago, it had such a greater chance of being solved than it happening in the 60s. Uh, This case and maybe the Claremont murders are two unsolved murders in Australia that I constantly look up and they just constantly stay with me. So sad. Yeah, maybe we'll cover the Claremont murders in the future. Maybe. 
So we are on Facebook, like the page and follow the group. If you send a request through, we will accept it pretty quickly. I'm on Instagram at InsightPod and Charlie is tweeting away on Twitter at InsightfulPod. You can listen to all our episodes, the show notes and some of our research on our website, InsightPod.com. And if you like what you hear and you can, please consider becoming a patron of Insight. You can access monthly special episodes and some other great rewards. For more information, head on over to our website. There are links there and also to our PayPal for a one-off donation. And if you are unable to donate at this time, that's fine. You can also show your support on iTunes or your favourite podcast app by rating, reviewing and subscribing because that's how people find us. So thank you so much, everyone. It's been a great six months. We'll see you next week. Bye, guys.